0: Hi, everyone. Steve Shepard here. Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. When the settlers first arrived in what is now New England and began to build towns and communities, they used two common layouts for the footprint of the village. One was linear, in which the town's buildings were stretched out along the main road. The other was a layout in which the primary buildings of the community, the general store, the grange, the saloon if there was one, the library, the school, the town hall, were all built to surround a central square. Today, that square is typically a park and often has a gazebo at its center and a statue of the town's founder somewhere in a corner near the road. It's often the location for town celebrations. For example, here in Williston, Vermont, where I live, it's where the 4th of July is celebrated with fireworks, an ice cream social, a frog jumping contest, all while the town band, the Williston Wheezers, plays patriotic songs in the gazebo. But before the town green became the town green, it was often used as a shared grazing area for the town's farmers. Livestock would be released into the commons where they would spend the day grazing. As long as the number of animals in the shared area didn't overwhelm the ability of the grass to regrow, the model worked. But sometimes it didn't. William Forster Lloyd was born in the UK in 1794, shortly after the start of the first industrial revolution around 1860. He studied economics and became well-known for a lecture he gave in 1833 about the impact of uncontrolled population growth. Essentially, what he said was that as long as farmers were careful about the number of grazing animals that they put into the shared grazing space, a balance would be maintained between the amount of grass the animals ate and the ability of the commons to recover. But as soon as one farmer got greedy and put additional livestock into the commons, others would follow his lead, and the grass in the commons would be overgrazed and destroyed. The result? Grass dies, livestock dies, business dies, town dies. Fast forward now to 1968, when controversial biologist Garrett Hardin published an essay entitled The Tragedy of the Commons, the name that's typically applied to this scenario. He based his ideas on William Forster Lloyd's work. Today, the term is often applied to situations involving ecology and sustainability, which is why it popped into my head during a recent conversation with my friend Pete Mulvihill. If you're a regular listener, you've heard him before. Pete's a fire protection engineer, and he's the former state fire marshal for Nevada, He's got as many stories as I have, and like me, he's interested in a wide range of topics, which is why he called me to talk about commercial fishing on the Georges Bank in the North Atlantic.
1: It's a large offshore, shallow water area, um, oval-shaped, about 150 miles by 75 miles. It's located about 60 miles east of Cape Cod, and it's south of Atlantic Canada. Uh, has easy access from both Gloucester, Massachusetts and Yarmouth, uh, major uh, fishing ports, and has been a popular commercial fishing ground going back a thousand years when Vikings, Basque, and other Europeans used to come over uh, to harvest cod and halibut primarily from that area. It was sustainably harvested for over 400 years until suddenly, in the late 20th century, the fishing stock uh, utterly collapsed.
0: Utterly collapsed. That surprised me because nature tends to be pretty resilient, even when confronting a challenge as daunting as humans. Lauren Isley once wrote, When man becomes greater than nature, nature, which gave us birth, will respond. Pete's story kindled a distant memory for me. I went over to my library here in my office, and in the marine biology section, I found what I was looking for, a book by William W. Warner called Distant Water, The Fate of the North Atlantic Fisherman. Based on my inscription, I bought the book in March of 1989, and in it, I found this quote by the author. A new generation of fish killers had come across the Atlantic. In 20 years in North American waters, They had, by their own account, taken over 72,333,000,000 pounds of fish. Very few among them could see that this was too much or that they had fished too well for their own future. He's talking about the great factory ships.
1: In the 70s, the fishing fleet started to modernize. They started to become much more efficient, Now, efficiency is not a bad thing. Efficiency lowers the cost uh, to the consumer of the product, uh, whatever it is being made, or in this case, caught. However, efficiency can have devastating effects. It's technology run amok. The peak harvest for cod was in 1968 when 810,000 tons of cod were caught.
0: Let me reiterate that. 810,000 tons, that's just over 1.6 billion pounds of fish that were taken from the North Atlantic. I also find it really interesting that this is the same year, 1968, when Garrett Hardin published The Tragedy of the Commons. These vessels, sailing from Spain, Russia, Canada, the United States, and other sovereign states, were murderous in their efficiency
1: these factory ships could catch in one hour what a fishing boat's full season could catch at the beginning of the 20th century.
0: You heard that right. A modern factory ship could capture in one hour what a fishing boat's entire seasonal catch would be at the beginning of the
1: 1900s. I'm uh, always reminded of John Muir's uh, saying that Whenever you try to change one single thing, you find it hitched to everything else in the universe. So it was an enormous uh, amount of fish. It also indiscriminately just pulled everything up from the bottom. Cod, haddock, uh, they're bottom feeders. They feed on the smaller fish that live near the bottom that hide in the rocky outcroppings. They also are part of the cod food chain. For every three tons of cod uh, that they caught and processed, there was another ton of what they called bycatch.
0: Bycatch refers to the incidental capture of species during the fish harvesting process that are not what the boats are trying to catch. In addition to cod, halibut, or other commercial game fish, bycatch includes turtles, dolphins, and juvenile fish, which are then tossed overboard, usually dead or dying. But that wasn't all that was dying. The entire industry was on its way down, And didn't know
1: it. As this harvest continued to develop and was uh, increased year after year, the fish started to decline. In uh, 1994, the cod stock had fallen 40% from its 1990 levels, and the yellowtail flounder stock had fallen 94% in the same four years. The U.S. government and the Canadian government uh, stepped in At one point, uh, self-regulation of the fisheries by the local uh, fishing commission obviously was not working. They imposed uh, moratoriums. Uh, The fishing industry did not like that. However, the fishing industry also didn't like going out and not finding any cod. It was estimated by the Canadian uh, fisheries management people that the Grand Banks off of Labrador and uh, and Newfoundland had been also similarly impacted, but would take about five years to recover. Uh, After 30 years of fishing restrictions, uh, the cod fishery up there still has not fully recovered.
0: So, after 30 years, the fishery still had not recovered. I find it interesting that years after he published Tragedy of the Commons, based on William Forster Lloyd's work in the 19th century, Garrett Hardin issued a statement in which he clarified his position, saying that he should have called it the tragedy of the unmanaged commons. So I asked Pete what he had discovered about the long-term consequences of overfishing the North Atlantic. turns out that the impacts aren't purely commercial. They're also ecological.
1: Fishing dates are still severely restricted. Much of the fishing fleet has uh, relocated to other areas. Some of the fishing boats have come over to the Pacific Ocean, uh, been redeployed over there. The fish are still there, but in very small numbers. Uh, The ecosystem has been uh, altered in the void created by the absence of cod, haddock, mackerel, um, all these other fish. Uh, Other species have moved into that void, anticipated to be a natural occurrence, So they are now establishing themselves to the exclusion of uh, the fish that had been there before. And uh, they will continue to uh, thrive and develop. Somebody will occupy that space. Some fish will.
0: But of course, it's more complicated than that.
1: Due to uh, climate change, warming of the oceans, some of the fish species that have moved into the Georgia's banks have come from southern traditionally warmer waters. Uh, without climate change, they would not have migrated that far up the East Coast and would not be up there. The main story, the depletion of the fishing stock on the Georges Bank, is not a climate change story. It's a uh, over-harvest story. And it's also a story of not just catching the cod, but the bycatch, which uh, turned out to be probably just as Contributory to the destruction of the, of the cod fishery uh, by taking away all their food.
0: The power of unintended consequences. Hey, big shout out to Pete Mulvihill for his work on this topic. Sometimes we have to take a step back and think beyond the short term and beyond the selfish needs of our own species. Remember Lauren Isley, when man becomes greater than nature, nature, which gave us birth, will respond. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did... I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.